Hello, welcome to the Chicken Ranch Records podcast. I'm Mike Dickinson. This is Season 2, Episode 2. On the program today, we have Richard Weimark, esteemed filmmaker, video director, documentarian, and Greg Beats, musician, writer, raconteur, uh, former member of Cheezus, current member of the Ron Titter Band, and they co-authored A Curious Mix of People. It's a fantastic oral history of the punk and indie scene of the 1990s. By no means a comprehensive guide, but a really great subsection that'll definitely whet your appetite for a great, great Austin music. And Richard Gregg's guest also is Carl Normal. He is in the band Stretford and uh, was active in the 1990s, and he provided great insight into the Austin music scene at the time. Has be releasing his catalog soon on Bandcamp and Spotify, so check that out. Um, we do have some great things to things coming up. South by South by Southwest, March 13th. Ranch by Chicken Ranch, 2024, 20th anniversary of all these crazy parties we have at South By. And then March 15th, I have a showcase at Valhalla starting at 7.30 p.m. Check it out. Check our website, crr.rocks. If you have any questions, uh, email us, ranch at crr.rocks. Enjoy this interview. Uh, it's a great, uh, so happy they brought Carl Normal with them. Really great meeting him and learning about Stratford and learning about just his involvement in the music scene. It's a pretty fun interview, and uh, please forget the road noise. We're at Burn It Go To, kind of a casual conversation. Thank you so much for tuning in. We're here with Greg Beats, Richard Weimark from the Curious Mix of People, and we have Carl Nomo also from the legendary Stratford. Good evening. I'll say evening at any time of day, so good evening. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with the book stuff first. I have a lot of questions for Carl also, but how did this book originally come about? I think, was that a Richard question or a great question? Uh, Chapo Pena, who did the collage on the front, got in touch with me one day and said, hey, remember when we used to do all that stuff when we were kids? Let's make a documentary about it. So we started, it got way out of control and a bit overwhelming. And then Greg Beats here came on board to transcribe all the interviews and got very much into it and had, correct me if I'm wrong, but you'd also had the idea of writing a book with Chepo, maybe at some point or doing a project, talking stuff. Chepo and I had the idea of, I think, and, and again, I mean, it, it, so much of this, it, it kind of comes back to uh, a conversation I had with, with Jonathan Tobin in about, I think it's sort of in about 2004, this was shortly after Wade Longenberger, the bass player for Squat Thrust, passed away, unfortunately. And so I was, I, I, Jonathan called me from New York and just sort of mentioned as an aside, it's like, hey, we need to get this stuff down. You know, we need to, you know, there, a lot of these folks aren't going to be around forever. And there was, there was so much that was going on back then that wasn't necessarily covered in depth by anybody. It would be a great idea to just have, have someone take this down. So when Chepo and I first talked about doing something along those lines, it was a website because it's uh, 2004. Really? So we talked about putting together an Austin, I had no clue. an Austin <laughs> underground punk website, which, which never came to pass. But, but then fast forward a few years and then your, your project comes along. I had no clue. That was the plan originally. Okay. That's very good. Was, so it, the, wasn't, it wasn't the plan. It was no, just a, it was a plan. We, yeah. It was, it was something, you know, that two guys shooting the shit were talking about that never, bore any fruit and, until 
until you came along. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so then during lockdown, we started doing a lot more interviews. But one of the first interviews we did was with uh, Carl Normal here from Stratford and his drummer, Ken Danley. And uh, do you remember doing this? Oh, it was yeah, in your apartment. Definitely. You had your northeast England flag definitely, in the background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in fact, can I jump in here? Because I've got, a, I've got a funny anecdote. About ten years ago, I was uh, studying graphic design at ACC, and um, I was in a photography class just for fun and like an elective class because I'm I kind of like photography. And uh, the instructor said, "Go out and take pictures of anything you want." Right. So um, I thought I'll go take some pictures of some people playing footy. Footy equals football equals soccer, just for the ignorant. Um, and so I went down to Zilka Park, and there were I knew on a certain day, amateur footy teams were kicking a ball around. Very amateur. Yeah, yeah. So I'm out there with my camera, and I hear this familiar voice behind me. All right, Carl. So hey, Richard, what's up? So Richard's there in his in his strip playing soccer right <laughs> I said what, what's going on Richard well he asked me I said taking pictures from my class I said what's going on with you he goes I'm writing a book I said yeah what's it about he goes actually Carl it's about you it absolutely is <laughs> I was is. like what are you talking about yeah. like, ten years later we're here so I just wanted to oh, yeah. mention that little well, story there's yeah. a great quote um, when we interviewed Britt Daniel Chepo was doing the interview and his last question was if you could sum up the 90s in our scene, how would you sum it up? And Britt thought long and hard. He said, Carl Normal. <laughs> yeah, I was a bit flattered by that. And I, I overly flattered because I was half of the 90s, you know. But you gave yeah. him his first live onstage for, for experience, Brit, really. For Brit, yeah. With, yeah. With, was it the Sid Bash? Um, no, it was a. I think it was a hoot night. A I seventy-seven think. hoot night, maybe uh, something uh, like that. At the Cannibal Club, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, so. very good. Yeah, and uh, also uh, speaking of clubs, sorry, Mike, we've just stolen no, your microphones. Totally fine, yeah. Speaking That's of clubs, so Star in Wagner talks about reading the zine that Carl wrote that was called No Reply, um, which has obvious meaning behind it. Uh, and Carl wrote a, a review of some bands and said the bands were amazing, but the venue's sound was awful. I believe it was the Ritz, it was, which yeah. was cavernous and a bit messy for yeah, this kind for, of thing. Yeah. And he said, we need a clubhouse. We need something for our little scene. And Starring Wagner saw that. I mean, it's literally a paragraph. And right, that's how right. the cavity started, yep. thanks to you. So you really are the genesis of what happened. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll accept the club part. Um, what, what I was actually going to say was, what Brit said, I'll take responsibility for about 30% of that. But there were a lot of bands that dressed up on stage and threw blood around. Yeah. I had nothing to do with that. <laughs> I heard that. I'd heard of Jesus, my friend and his, her boyfriend actually moved to Ruston, Louisiana. So this band called Jesus throws cheese slices out everywhere. I said, well, I've got to see that band one day. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the genesis of, of Jesus, I don't know that I, or, or at least the name Jesus, I don't know if I ever told this story before, but, you know, again, kind of the inner circle, so to speak, it kind of came out of a conversation that I had with Jennifer Newton and Naomi Shapiro. Yeah. 
Jennifer and Naomi did a radio show on KTSB, which was the cable FM student radio station at the time. Is that Jennifer who was in The Million Sellers? That's that's Jennifer Lukemeyer. That's okay, different okay, different okay. Jennifer. Yeah. But uh, but but Jennifer and Naomi would do every week. They would do a, a theme show. Yeah, yeah. And we did a we did a show that where the theme was cheese. Yeah. And I, I'm not sure how we all threw that together. You know, is cheese? However, we interpreted it basically. Right, right. I recall playing like Donny Osmond and yeah, yeah. Joni Summers and some weird <laughs> cri- Christian Brilliant. children's music and yeah, stuff like yeah. that. But but I, I want to say it was Jennifer who mentioned Jesus for the first time. It was the first time I had ever heard the term. And uh, and and so I, I probably mentioned it to Jonathan about yeah, the time yeah. we were knocking around talking about starting a band. And and so that, that sort of is, is kind of the way we back ended into that. But yeah, we, we were, you know, it, it just made sense. You know, we're, we're Jesus. We, and, and we're going to, we're going to throw cheese at people. Yeah. And we didn't really know what we were doing musically. Uh, we just knew that we wanted to get up and, uh, and throw cheese. We wanted to throw cheese, and we wanted to we wanted to get we wanted to basically be belligerent and yeah. and and put on a show. Did, yeah. did the cheese get thrown back at you? Well, we learned very early on um, that yes, it did. I, I think it was our third show ever that um, we threw cheese at the audience, and it started coming back at us. And my yeah. first thought was like, they don't like us. But then when I talked to a, a friend who was out in the audience, and he's like, oh yeah, I threw cheese. Everybody was throwing right. cheese. It was a great. It was a great time, and then I just realized it was better than being gobbed upon, yes. definitely. Because yeah. squat uh, thrusts talk about that. They used to throw raw meat into the audience right. that they'd come out from some papier-mâché construction. Right. And then they would leave, and then the headliner would come on, and all this raw meat would get thrown <laughs> at the headliner. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they didn't get that gig again. <laughs> yeah, so the cheese is more genteel. I think it's more of a Rip Taylor kind of thing instead of, like, throwing raw meat out in the crowd like Skinny Puppy or a squat thrust, you know. Yeah, and, uh, it's, it's definitely better than raw meat, although I remember one time we got a bunch of, uh, like, frozen cheese pizzas, and people could hurl those at you like Frisbees, and if you get broadsided one of those, it was, yeah, it did, didn't feel good. And that actually reminds me of another thrown food stuff story. Does anybody, do you guys remember the band Mr. Groper, by any chance? I know the name. That's a great name, yeah. yeah. Mr. Groper was, uh, they, I don't think we write about them in the book, but they were kind of a... I think they were tearing a page out of the same book as uh, maybe like the Hickoids. You know, they, okay. they, they kind of had a bit of a punk kind of thing interspersed with some demented country. Yeah, yeah. And they, they did songs about uh, laxatives and stuff like that. But gotcha. their, their whole thing was throwing uh, pieces of fried chicken out yeah. of the audience. And I remember one time getting getting clubbed in the face with a, a chicken breast. Yeah. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, just smacked me right in the lip and gave me a fat lip and so yeah you had to be careful speaking of raw meat there is a story in the book uh about one band who played at the blue flamingo this was as they say before lady gaga they 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 made masks face masks out of raw fajita meat like they'd wired it together but they hadn't cut out a hole for the mouth so the singers just got this raw fajita meat that's been sitting and going moldy throughout the day and so he of course he ends up vomiting all over the blue flamingo and there's this raw meat everywhere Uh, yeah it was was it down system yes down Down syndrome Syndrome army Army. (laughs) which makes sense yeah yeah this is a complete side note but here's another uh thing Carl has done for this whole 
scene and for the book and, and is a big thing. He basically got Rebecca Cannon into the entertainment industry. Yeah. So Rebecca, the got singer... Her, got her on a stage, yeah. But how did that come about? How did you get her on trumpet in Stratford? You know, it's very hard to remember. Um, I met her at a show. I can't tell you where, but she was out and about. She was on the scene. Might have been at Chances. Might have been. Um, and uh, we just added horns to the Stratford sound. Went from a three-piece to a five-piece with two-piece horn section. Not quite yet. At the time, my girlfriend Terry was on sax and we needed a trumpet player. And we found Rebecca and she was the same height and build as my girlfriend. My girlfriend was blonde and she was a brunette. They complemented each other really well on stage. Rebecca had played a bit of trumpet in high school. I approached her, she says, yeah, I'll do it. And that's how the horn section became. So. That's pretty cool. I, but, but then, as Rebecca tells it, she, she herself says she was a terrible trumpet player. I maybe could hold a note down, which was yeah. good. Yeah. But, you know. Uh, and the way she tells it, you very kindly suggested that perhaps she be a front person in another band because she has that charisma. That, so that was that your encouragement. Yeah. Well, I, I could tell she wrote a song for the band, which we played. It was a pretty fun song. And then she wrote another, and I said, wait a minute, Rebecca. Uh, I formed this band so I could write some songs, right, So and sing them. Uh, I think you need to be in a band of your own. That's. And then she saw the ad in the Chronicle. Yeah. Was yeah. that song, I Like Punk? That was a Rebecca original. Yeah, yeah I like punk. Be- yeah. yeah, I like punk because it's trendy. It makes me feel good inside. I think is <laughs> where, where the lyrics. But yeah. no, I mean you're right. I mean the horns were very, uh, you know, ramshackle. But then I think about that that recording from the Target EP of uh, "It's Over Now," and and the horns are perfect for that. They they they, they just yeah they add such a good yeah, atmosphere. They work on that song. Wow, that's a good question. But not in the same field. Musicians have gone on to run clubs, but also run restaurants. Yeah. for instance. A lot of this actually goes back to KTSB and KVRX Radio. We were just discussing that earlier with a lot of people that that KTSB, which is now KVRX, sort of was the grounding force for so many people. It changed their way of thinking into a more sort of DIY way of doing things, but then gave them skills to be to work in the arts and work in the you know, businessy side of things as well. I think to, to a lot of us, that was really the, the crux of, of how we got our careers. I, yeah, I, I think you're, you're right about K, KTSB slash KVRX. I mean, I, th- I think what I took away from that wasn't necessarily the raw skills as much as it was just, like, how to work with other people in a, collect- a, in a collective where... Nobody's really making a lot of money, but everybody is really very passionate about what it is they, they're doing. And, um, yeah, how, how, to be, how to be cool without being a snob, I think, was part of it. Like, you, you want to guard the gates from mediocrity, but at the same time, you don't want to be a, a total dick about it. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, there, there was a lot of that. And so, I, I mean, I, I've, I've mentioned this to Kevin Turif, who was really principled to getting KTSB started back in the late 80s that there's there's really not a day that goes by that I don't 
I, I don't take something I learned from that experience there just in terms of the people skills. It was very important. And then you talk about restaurants and stuff. I mean, Put the mic a little bit closer to and, and emos. But, yeah, Graham, Graham Williams is one of the most successful music promoters in town. You have Noah Polk, who worked at emos. He runs Eastside Pies. A lot of those guys really have, have gone into, uh, you know, business. And I, and I think emos, just the way they ran the business there, I think, gave people a good basis in terms of how to run, th- how to be cool, how to book good stuff, how, but then how to keep the business going. How was emos from a musician's perspective for you guys, though? Like for, for Stratford, you would have played there, right? We, we did play there. How was it, though, like going from Cavity, Blue Flamingo world to Emo's world? It happened very quickly, and I wasn't really ready for it, personally. I felt almost felt at home in a small club. One thing that people don't remember is that uh, even though I'm the biggest scene maker in Austin, yeah, you my band was, we were a middling band, you know? We, okay. we put in our... You had devoted fans, though. We did, we did. But we weren't the kind of local band that would fill Emo's outside or even half of Emo's outside. That venue was initially too big for us. If we got on the right bill with the right band, we'd get a better crowd. Right. uh, So I I felt a bit swallowed by and intimidated by the size of Emo's. Yeah, it's a huge leap, isn't it, from no stage at Blue Flamingo. But... Uh, to compare the two clubs, it's it's night and day. Yeah. You know, one was a squalid hellhole, and the, and the other, other was Blue Flamingo. <laughs> right, right, right. The other was Blue Flamingo, which was a different kind of squalid hellhole. And I love both those clubs dearly. You know, uh, Emos was a lot more professional. They actually had a, a changing slash band room. Uh, the, the, you know, and they gave you free drinks and and you got paid. So. You know, that I never complained about, you know. And they had water. In the, yeah, they did. Yeah, you could they actually had bottles of water. Yeah, ne- ne- never mind the beer. Yeah, they had water yeah. as well. Yeah, I mean, it's just, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, and, and, and they had an ad in the paper that was usually correct every week. Right, right. That's and, a good point. Uh, yeah. yeah, we never saw an ad for Blue Flamingo when we played. Played Blue Flamingo four times and Hole in the Wall once and then Emo's once. I thought it was really awesome. And then uh, we had water, too. They gave us water and we got paid. That was good. I got paid once at Blue Flamingo. That was pretty awesome. Yeah? 50 bucks, $53. Look at you. I was like, oh, man, this is great. It was was one of the most fun shows I've ever played in my entire life, though. Yeah. 1995, yeah. It was fun. (laughs) Um, I mean, but Blue Flamingo, getting paid at Blue Flamingo depended on whether or not someone stole the cash jar or the cash. Right. Yeah, there'd be times when the tip jar was there for the bands, and just as it got full, someone would steal it and run out the door and, you know. Purchase their necessities purchase for the their night. Necessities out on Seventh yeah. and Red River. Yeah. But then Carl mentioned also a club that was caddy corner from Blue Flamingo, which was Chances, oh, okay. which is hugely important. Um, started out uh, as a, a lesbian bar that was very closed. Windows were all dark because it was a private club. And then Sandra Martinez, who was one of the managers and owners, decided to take the blackout off the window. And that caused some concern amongst the regular patrons because Texas was not and perhaps still is not a safe place to be out and gay. And so that really caused a rift. But I think ultimately it opened up the scene to everyone and was more about we're out and we're here and we're present and you can see us. And then they started inviting 
any kind of music really that was good. And so that's how us idiots got invited to go and play there. Yeah. In, including a lot of bands that were all girl bands or predominantly female bands, female musicians. And the punk prom. Oh, the yeah, punk yeah. prom, yeah. Now, what was your... You were in the court at the punk prom. I don't, I but I don't was. quite record... Who... What was your... What was your... Do you remember what's your role? Were you a duke or... Um, I, I really can't remember what my role was, but I was there... Um, Cindy Wiedner from uh, Happy Family and Later Power Snatch. She was my lady at the uh, punk rock plum. So I was there to escort her, yes. That's right, okay. I I wasn't actually at that show, but I I have the videotape of it, and I, yeah, you're all looking very dapper. The genesis of that show is somewhat interesting. Terry Lord, being out and queer, said that she could never go to prom because... You can't. You need a male date, and you probably have to be straight. And so they all decided, let's have a prom for all of us. And we can all be kings and queens, and it doesn't matter what. You can cross-dress. You don't have to. You can wear a nice suit and bow tie or a straight tie. And it was the punk rock prom. And I think it's a really sweet gesture that that was from Terry not being able to do that as a kid. And she lost a bit of her American childhood because that's a big deal, right? Yeah. So I think it's lovely that you guys did that. And I think just to cap off that talk about punk rock prom, I don't really know much about proms, but they don't they elect a punk rock queen? King and queen, is it? Yeah. Uh, a king and queen. King and queen, yeah. I think uh, Tim Stegall was voted uh, punk rock queen at the punk rock prom. <laughs> I'm pretty certain of that. He was crowned, yeah. I do remember that. There wasn't and any I, pig blood involved, was there? From uh, Carrie, yeah. and there was there was a sanctioned hickey contest, yeah, which yeah, yeah. you might have a hickey contest at a typical American high school prom, but it wouldn't be you know sanctioned yeah, yeah. by the organizers necessarily. Um, but it yeah, be public for uh, no. public witnessing. Yeah, but that was uh, yeah, and and I believe Gretchen Phillips served as sort of the master of ceremonies. And uh, it was, you know, fantastic. Uh, you know, the, the, the dresses that I remember everybody in Power Snatch wearing were just the, the greatest the, the greatest prom dresses oh, you could yeah. possibly was, imagine picking brilliant. up from. Yeah. yeah, the whole. Extravagant. Yeah. Extravagant. The whole conceit of it was just, it was just fantastic. Yeah, it was. Yeah. It was. So these clubs were all downtown, right? Yeah. And what's weird now is that the outliers to us were Electric Lounge, which it was pretty much where Whole Foods now is. That, you made a huge effort to go out into this dusty West Austin area. That It was a real effort to go there, but it was worth it. And then Liberty Lunch was at 2nd Street, and that was also an effort, because that was surrounded by empty dirt lots as well. When they, yeah. when they dirt at that point, yeah. Liberty? I remember, like, now by Electric Lounge, I remember, yeah, the roads... Uh, I think once you got south of Fifth Street, uh, yeah, there were literal dirt roads back there, no. like by the railroad tracks. Uh, what I remember about Liberty Lunch is that where I believe where the W Hotel is now, that was a surface lot, and it was kind of just yeah, catty corner to Liberty Lunch, and that was where you parked for free when you were going over to, to Liberty Lunch. But it was, and, and then right across the street, just to the north of Liberty Lunch, there was like a warehouse that looked like. It was out of a '50s vandalism film, with all the <laughs> yeah, windows, yeah. with all the windows busted out and everything. That's right. yeah. yeah, 
So for for the newcomers, Liberty Lunch was the big venue where if you're on 120 Minutes on MTV or anything like that, or in the, that indie vein, when we were there, that's sort of who played there. But Electric Lounge had more of an artistic bent. They would have... Uh, Happy Hours with uh, Hamill on Trial, who's an acoustic singer-songwriter. They would have art shows. I remember Rebecca Cannon, she got all the musicians that she knew to present their artwork. That's right. Bill Jeffrey, for instance, great artist. He had his hanging up there, Biscuit had some. Mm -hmm. And she called it the first annual musician's art show. It was the only art show that she did. (laughs) But but that, that was a great club too, and I think Stretford played their... Maybe more than many other clubs, maybe? At, uh, or is that just my fuzzy memory? At Electric Lounge? Uh, yeah. We played there a lot, yeah. It we did. It suited you, I think, the size and the red it did. curtain behind It did, although I, I must admit, I'm, I think anyone who knows anything about Stratford knows I'm, uh, I was a musical purist yeah. at the time. And my influence, the, the only reason I formed Stratford, if, if I'd have tried to do a... 70s inspired melodic punk rock band back home I would have got laughed off stages because you know English music audiences can be quite fickle things had moved on but here it was the existence of Stretford was still a bit of a an anomaly because I was the only person doing clearly 70s inspired melodic punk rock and by the time the electric lounge opened alternative rock music and other styles of rock were really they were really getting more popular and so electric lounge even though we played there a lot i didn't think we fit with a lot of the bands oh isn't that weird yeah i i thought you fit perfectly but that's just my take yeah but also you know uh john motard for instance when we talked to him he yeah. said, I don't want to go and see the same types of band every night. I, I don't want a bill where it's all punk rock. Right, I want a right. mix. So the fact that you did mix in with the different styles yeah. made I, it more entertaining. And I did like the club, and I did go to a lot of shows there, even on nights when we weren't playing, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, it also, the club felt a little L.A. It felt a bit flashy. Well, it, it was exactly L.A. They yeah. had come from Los Angeles I, I guess and they based did, yeah. it on the L.A. clubs. I guess they, they did, yeah. So, so it, it didn't smell as earthy as I needed it to be. Uh, that's all we'll I can say. Straw down e- even though, like you say, it was on a unde- huge undeveloped lot. And, uh, you know, in the summer, the dry dust was kicking up and it was right by a railroad. I like the aesthetic outside. But the club itself was a bit too slick, to be honest. Isn't that strange that yeah. that was the slick club? But, but everyone has their own perspectives, right? So That's, that's hilarious. I, I cause totally understand that, yeah. At the, at the time, you're right. I, I think Electric Lounge, from where... If you'd come from the cavity, the Electric Lounge was like... Or, walk, or even the hole in the wall. Or even, yeah. yeah, it was like walking into like the 21 Club or something yeah. almost. Because it was so... Yeah, it, 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 you know. But, but by today's standards... I mean, Electric Lounge would absolutely be a dive. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, More or less would, yeah. Yeah, uh, which, is, which is funny. And, then, yeah. and, and we should talk a little bit about the, the hole in the wall because I, yeah, I think yeah. about, you know, obviously the cavity is near and dear to my heart, but, uh, you know, some of the best Stratford shows I ever saw were at, were at Hole in the Wall. Yeah. And, and so, do you me- Hole in the Wall was always there. Cavity was only there for a year. So, yeah. yeah. Do you remember the first time you played there? I don't. I honestly don't remember the first well, time we've we got the, the calendars. We will look it up for <laughs> yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Debbie I'd, sent us all nice of her calendars. That would be nice yeah. to know. 
Yeah. Uh, every she scanned them all. Yeah, it's amazing. Henry Ewings has those uh, flyer books for Athens and Atlanta now called Plus One. That would be really good to have like all those kind of calendars in a in a book like that or a website or something too. Yeah, well, sure, someone can do that. <laughs> there's, there's been talk about it, hasn't there? A flyer archive. Um, there was someone recently asking just to collect any and all flyers that everyone has. But yeah. then also Jennifer Hecker does amazing work at the Austin History Center. She started working there a few years ago and, you know, comes from our scene. Yes. And so the Austin History Center is amazing, but it's kind of sort of dusty library, but it's still an amazing research place. And Jennifer's sort of bringing the more modern punk stuff. Into yeah, it. yeah. When I say modern, I mean 30 years ago. Right, right. <laughs> Should have a museum. Boston should have a museum, a music museum anyway. I mean, there's a Texas one, but I don't, it's in a very, in a good place actually, but it doesn't, it, no one ever goes there, I don't think. Yeah. It's on 11th Street. Yeah, it's, well, it's also tiny and very unofficial, right? You go in and there's some boards up that explain some of Austin's history from the east side, which is amazing and deserves many books of its own, but it's not the sort of all encompassing history museum which is weird that we're being talked about as if we belong in museums well that's the yeah you never you never in a million years would have thought had you been as contemporaries like is doing this yeah you you certainly weren't thinking about being a part of history and a couple of months ago pad blashell who is a big photographer working in austin a lot during the 80s he held kind of a storyteller event for you know talk about the 80s punk rock scene here and he, and he was kind enough to invite me to talk a little bit about the bridge between the 80s and the 90s because yeah, yeah. they're definitely very you can't have one without yeah. the other yeah. but I was having the same conversation with Chris Gates from the big boys and, and he was talking about how there, there are people who collect all their flyers and you know, they played so many shows that there's a lot of stuff that you know if you played that many shows there's no way you could have a recollection of all those yeah, and absolutely. and he also said we didn't really think we were making uh, history and I, and I think about a band of the gravity of the big boys, and I think about yeah, a, a yeah. lot of what we tried to do was, was predicated on the paths that they had they had built, both in terms of how they were doing things, and then just like the ethics of it, like that it really mattered that you were keeping it that, that you were you were doing things yourself. Yeah. So keeping it DIY. Yeah. Definitely. So so hearing hearing Chris say that, I felt a little wow. You know, it's like if he didn't expect to, if if he of all people didn't expect to be history, then I really don't expect to be <laughs> history. <laughs> So um, it's the 90s, 1990, which is what one of the markers is when King Coffee started Trans Syndicate, January 1st, 1990. And the marker at the end pretty much is when Liberty Lunch closed. But then also Bates Motel was and around, but Lounge also closed and Electric Lounge closed, Liberty Lunch closed. That's a big. I didn't realize it closed in '99. Yeah, it was. Our our Fletcher Bounce would be open forever. Um, The Chronicles wrap up for that year. The the headline I think kind of summed it up very nicely because it was it was the year it all went wrong. (laughs) Which, depending on where you sit with with regard to what Austin was and and what it has become, I I think that's the other kind of subtext within the book is that '90s were when I, I really think Austin was starting to become what it is now it was evolving from a medium-sized kind of sleepy second tier city into a a player like a major city that people 
had heard about where people would no longer ask you, oh, you mean Austin, Minnesota or Austin, Texas. It became one of the big, big cities. There was a lot more money. Big business was coming here. Big business. Here. Was, yeah. High tech was coming here. Yeah. I think at the start of the 90s, I mean, music was definitely at the at the center of what Austin was about culturally. And by the end of the 90s, probably still was, but it was really becoming like truly, and it always been a tech town and there's Motorola and Cimitech and all these places, Texas but instruments. yeah, it, but, but it became, but I think it became more known for that. And that, you know, is, is the nineties ended. Speaking of Texas instruments, I'm curious when you weren't being on stage, what bands did you choose to go out and see? Um, I did see Texas instruments quite a bit. Texas instruments, the band yeah, who were later sued by, uh, Texas Instruments Corporation and had to call themselves, I think, the Instruments That's for a right. while. Yeah. And then Texas Instruments changed their name to National Instruments. Is that right? Yeah, I, so did not know that. Anyway. I did not know that. But I will say I was desperately looking for like-minded musicians when I moved here, which was 1989. I had been in Texas a little bit in the 80s, so that's one reason I really enjoyed the opening chapter of Curious Mix of People because I think uh, the narrative for chapter one did a really good job of bridging the 80s cultural scene and what happened in the 90s. And I was here for a lot of the 80s as well. I did a lot of back and forth from Austin, Manchester, Austin, Manchester at that time. So So um, what did you discover when you got, when late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, so I moved here in 89 and... uh, I just started going, to, I figured out which were the clubs that had local alternative, for lack of a better word, music. And the first, I'd say, three bands I discovered that I thought, these guys are all right, uh, in this order, were uh, the Wannabes, uh, the Pocket Fishermen, and Happy Family. Fantastic. Yeah. So That's, a good, that's, a, that's yeah, not terrible. That's yeah. I think yeah, John, yeah. John Peel would agree with you. I reckon so. <laughs> yes. I reckon so. So um, when you were in Manchester, when you yeah. were growing up, did the idea of DIY music or underground music enter your realm of thinking? Because in Ipswich, it never. I didn't think of it as DIY. We went to see our friends in tiny venues or clubs above pubs. Yeah, you know, but yeah. it wasn't a thing that we gravitated to. I, I think it was because... Um, how old are you nowadays, oh, Richard? God, 48, maybe? Yeah, 48-ish. Yeah. So I've got uh, 10 years on you, right? Ah. So when I really started getting into punk rock and the whole DIY ethic, it was 1980. Right. And, uh, and it was in England where punk was a huge thing. All the bands were household names, top 40. I mean, it was a, it was a cultural explosion, really. Yeah. So I was very in touch with the idea of do it yourself, put your own records out, print your own t-shirts, book your own shows. That that to me was automatic. So, so it that, really that, was a thing going on. That that for me came from uh, being catching the tail end of the British punk rock scene. Right. So, I was in the right place at the right time, you know. And so, I mean Manchester, that's Definitely. Yeah. So that that stayed with me. That's fantastic. And that's why I did things the way I did, you know. Yeah, I just, I didn't realize that's what we were doing. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. We did it physically, yeah, but yeah. didn't realize there was a name for this. Sure, sure. Like, academically, yeah. let's say. Yeah. Well, 10 years is a big uh, generation gap when it comes to scenes. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, we, you know, we were happy Mondays and in spiral carpets yeah. and stone roses and all that. Right, right. Uh, but Which I like all those bands as well, you know. But still, um, they they already seemed distant. Like yeah. They were already pop stars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we liked our little local bands as well. Of which course. Was, which was nice. Um, Mega City 4, let's not forget. Oh, yeah. 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 Man, anniversary of Wiz's passing just passed. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I saw. Man, oh. I got cheers to see. Cheers to Wiz. Cheers to Wiz. <laughs> got to see him play with Ned's Atomic Dustbin at Liberty Lunch oh, during South by Southwest, brilliant. and I got to chat with him because he's just hanging about. Yeah, yeah. I said, "Why can't Mega City Four come back to America?" He said, "We can't yeah. afford it," and it never clicked how expensive it is for these indie English bands to, yeah. to tour. Yeah, I and and. Um, when we were talking to King Coffee, like the reason he started his label, Trance, was because, you know, from the butthole surfers, they spent their lives in a van, but they realized how difficult it was for Austin and Texas bands to get out of the state. It's such a shag to tour. Yeah, right? yeah definitely. Right? And definitely. I think one big thing, too, that, and this comes from the outside, outside looking in, but it seemed like Austin had more of an infrastructure. It seemed to be more of a fully formed music community than it actually kind of was when you got here. It's a little bit intimidating on the outside. And then you get in, and you're like, oh, it's just people hanging out, doing their thing. But there wasn't like a big breakthrough, like a like a scene like Manchester, where people actually were becoming pop stars in the 90s in Austin. Right. That, that is true. I think for people who um, wanted to go the traditional route and get signed and backed by a major label... They'd go to New York, LA, or Nashville, right? Not Austin, Texas. I mean, MTV came here, right? That's I mean, not, right. not just the thing with Daniel Johnson, but yeah. MTV. What was it? Austin Stories. Well, they filmed, yeah, they filmed a show here that was uh, in the in the '90s called. It was a a sitcom. Yeah. Was uh, it that, that was starring local comedians? Um, I think Laura House and Howard Krimmer, and I'm going to totally blank on the other guy's name and. Johnny Hardwick, who we lost recently, was originally supposed to be a part in a part of that, and uh, then I think he got he got the gig with King of the Hill doing uh, Dale's voice, and so so yeah, that came out in maybe what ninety five, ninety six. Um, I think it was ninety six. I was looking yeah, here when it came out. I, I think you're right. Austin had infrastructure. Austin definitely had a lot of a lot of bands, a lot of places to play, but it it didn't really have an industry infrastructure as such certainly not anything like what you had in nashville or la or even i would say even new york or maybe even like some place like chicago and I, I think what austin really didn't have is is there wasn't this and we talked a little bit about this earlier today the, the, there was no barrier between audience and the stage in some cases there was no stage so it was very very easy as someone even if you weren't like a super confident super ambitious person showing up but knowing that you love music and maybe you thought about being in a band for a long time but you didn't know how to go about doing it really to suddenly find yourself playing in a band and 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 so there, there was it yeah there there was not a, a, a pro a, a pro attitude and, but, for better or worse within that there were plenty of record labels well, that was something that was unique to the 90s, I think, you know, that there, that there was that explosion. Of... And it was strange because there was this sort of corporate centralization, if you look at it through that lens, from Sound Exchange, the record store where Jeremiah the Frog is being preserved. 
like that was full of people running a record store and running record labels, right? Like Rise right. was Rise your first label? Uh, in no, well we self-released a record yeah. and then uh, Unclean, Unclean, which was run by Roger out of Sound Exchange. Yes, yeah. yeah. Of course, you know they were all locally based independent record labels versus the kind of major label industry that started this conversation. So you're right, but it was what was here was like a fertile DIY scene and never a uh, sort of corporate, let's find the next big thing. Although yeah, strange, you know. strangely enough, though, uh, Craig from Rise Records, he did have that distribution deal with Dutch East India. So there's a little bit of you know, more yeah, corporate yeah. thing going yeah. on there. There were aspirations. Yeah, well, I mean, Craig had the deal with Dutch East India, and, and then uh, I think King uh, Coffee and Trance were distributed by Touch and & Go, and then they also had European distribution. So if you were a band like Ed Hall, you might find yourself on uh, on the BBC, on John Peel's show or something like that. And so that, I, mean, I think that was part of it. Too. I'm, I'm still kind of processing this whole idea of why Austin was what it was. And maybe to some degree, this is more of a city cultural thing or maybe even a Texas cultural thing. But it was just the weather is pretty nice usually, except when it's hot as hell. People are hanging outside. You're drinking beer under the stars. And it's just, I, I don't know. I mean, it was a real conducive atmosphere like a place like liberty lunch like you'd strike up conversations with people if you start striking up a conversation like that in some place else they might look at you like you were crazy and but also in the same thing kirthy fix when we well when you talked to her she pointed out that our generation or our part of our generation is somewhat skeptical of success mm-hmm. you know when Definitely. brit got signed to matador at blue flamingo there was suddenly a backlash. Oh, Spoon, they, ah, I didn't think much of them. Suddenly, you know, when you've been watching them at the hole in the wall forever. Right. When Sincola got signed to Caroline, oh, yeah, no, they're nothing. You know, there's this sort of unhealthy backlash. I, I, think. I agree. I agree. There, there was a bit of that, yeah. I mean, it comes from jealousy, absolutely. But it also comes from when your little band that is yours suddenly gets known by hundreds of other people. That's the funny thing about that time is that you would, um, like, I, you know, the band I was in, we opened for Green Day right before Dookie oh. came out. And, wow, okay. and uh, we opened for Weezer right before that, you know, it's right after that record came out. And, and uh, you know, these days, I don't know that a local band would even have the opportunity to uh, open for those bands. Actually, we were supposed to, better than Ezra, funny, funny story about that, I mean, we were better than Ezra was going to open for us as well here in Austin and at the Electric Lounge. But the night before the Electric Lounge caught on fire, so I remember that. that show. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was. I, I think you know Richard hit the nail on the head. I think when a lot of the notion of you know the success thing, I think uh, that was definitely rooted. I think in a very visceral sense in just basic de- jealousy. But at the same time, you know you had. You know, the SST record sticker, Corporate Rock Still Sucks. You had, you know, if Kurt Cobain's going to be on the cover of the Rolling Stone, he's going to uh, put, you know, wear a T-shirt that says Corporate Magazines Still Suck. And um, you had S- Steve Albini uh, writing in, like, Forced Exposure, talking about how the major labels were just going to totally fuck you. And, and you know, uh, you know so, so there was a lot of, um, you know, there were some economic 
arguments based on top of that. I think at the, at the heart of it, it was emotional, but at the same time, it was just this ethos that like you're, you're being very skeptical of anybody who is trying to sell you anything good was, was definitely, I think, a big piece of generationally where we were coming from. Yeah. Oh, it's the and it's that whole you know that like being on TV and movies and stuff is a little bit uh, more of a it wasn't the way it is now. Everybody's oh great, you got money, and now back then it was kind of like ah, oh, you sure you want to do that? And yeah, you, know, you really kind of lose. I think that's the bad thing with these uh, new publishing deals that I think that a lot of these places are doing. They're buying catalogs, and you know you'll see you know Willie Nelson's music in a tampon commercial one day or something, and that's that that's a bit. Yeah, that's one thing I, I worry about with some of these artists selling their catalog and master corporation. I, I I think things have evolved to such a level now that I, I wouldn't even be in a position to to judge how how rough things have gotten. I mean, I'm, I, I still do some. I still I'm I'm in a, the same type of small time band I was in back then. I think we were we were lucky to make you know twenty dollars selling a copy of our single and a T-shirt or something like that and. I looked at our our, our streaming dashboard <laughs> a couple of days ago, and we've had a record out since 2017. I think we've made made eight bucks in streaming. But so I tell you exciting. what, though, we have a happy story with the publishing thing, right? Because in the process yes. of making the documentary film, I it's my job to work out who owns all these bands' recordings, because mm-hmm. not all the bands own their stuff. And we discovered that someone had purchased your Stratford's yeah. rights. Yeah, we, we got a small publishing company based in California whilst the band was still around. And uh, when the band broke up, I never told them and it wasn't discussed. And then about uh, two years ago, I got a letter from BMG, the international conglomerate publishing company, that said, where, where do you want us to send this money? And I called them up and said, what are you talking about? And they said, we purchased Bug Music from California's catalog, including yours, and we've got a check for 300 bucks. I said, send it here. (laughs) (laughs) So, but but I had to break the chains with them because I think you had, or someone from you were working with, had contacted them to see if it was okay to use our material, and they charge you some extortionate amount of money, right? Yeah, well, we hadn't even got as far as talking money. Yeah. We just were curious as to why this massive corporation owned Stratford's music yeah, yeah. and why normal publishing didn't yeah, yeah, own it. Yeah. And, um, Perfectly normal hits <laughs> Yeah, is the name. That's brilliant. Uh, um, I think so. Yeah, I'm pretty certain, 99.9% yeah, sure. They handed it over, I thought. I thought so too. I'll I'll double check the email. Yeah, yeah it looked like it to me. To I, me, that I, made me so happy. I wanna I wanna double check that since you brought it up, so you don't get hit with a nasty legal letter. You Thank know? you. Yeah. So. I appreciate. It. That's kind of the funny thing about it is that just the fact that you. you yeah, I mean, the the money is is really, you know, the the money between you as the songwriter, and. You know, someone who wanted, you know, wanted to use your music. I mean, it's like just just figuring that out, yeah. the hours that, that would involve, you know. The, I mean, yeah, yeah if yeah. you need a lawyer to do that, I mean, that's just, it becomes a fiscal impossibility. It does, it yeah. does. And, and because BMG is such a, a huge operation, I, mean, I think. BMI, right? Is no, it's BMG. BMG's oh, yeah. published. Based in BMI Germany. Like the, oh, okay. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay, the old Bertelsmann. He's yeah, got okay. bought also, yeah. too. Okay. But, but um, you know, 
being who they are, I think they have standard fees for usage. They don't care if your your documentary film or your book or whatever is a little independent, homegrown operation. They just have standard fees for letting them use their artists. And apparently we became one of their artists for a while. Yeah. So It seems like you could do... I mean, it's like there's no infrastructure for it, but, you know, the, the notion of being able to pair a, a small independent movie or something like that with with a small independent music that could possibly be mutual mutually it's beneficial great would be yeah. great but yeah. then it's just a matter of you know how, how do you put that together how do you build the infrastructure so mike here runs chicken ranch records <laughs> you're in the thick of things how would you do it uh yeah i could actually have a i have an answer for that too i would i would standardize they did like you hear like hospitals different different hospitals have different like data sets and everything dell is really trying to get in that area where it's like a standardized records and everything like uh like your records in england might be different because you know different data and different things and it's just named different it's also named things the same data but just differently named and they could standardize data across all these enterprises of publishing it would be easy to say hey who has david bowie's song it's on hunky dory side b or whatever and can we use this whatever and it should be it should be an instantaneous thing where you're like okay this is for like a film festival pricing this is for like a usage it should be a pretty automated thing i think people want to have job security maybe and they want to yeah, hold on to their their gig i'm doing that right now with the david bowie song trying to find for a documentary and uh it's a, it's a lot of work trying to find just find the right person to talk to i'm going to jump in in a completely different direction but when did you move to Austin, Mike? Uh, uh, 1996, actually. 96. And what about you, Richard? Did you initially come here for school? I did, yeah. yeah I, what I, year was that? I didn't do very well at A-levels. Yeah. Uh, I got here, I believe, in December 93. Okay. And what, yeah. what about you, Greg? I got here uh, in May of 1987. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's a good year. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're at... We're at Burnett Go To, just outside of Burnett Go To right now. And they have, there's a poster, a Frank Kozik, another Rest in Peace poster on the wall for a Butthole Surfers two-night stand at uh, the Cave Club. Mm-hmm. It was like Thursday, May 28th, and Friday, May 29th. And it was that Friday, May 29th, that I, I moved here. Wow, yeah. wow. Very yeah. cool. Is there anyone in the book that you wished you could have uh, gotten to talk more about the book that's no longer with us, or...? Hmm. Uh, Frank Kozak. Yeah, yeah. He, I think, chose not to be interviewed. So that was a, a shame because, you know, that's huge. Uh, unfortunately, we did not interview Spot before he passed away. That was a shame. We've got a sort of rest in peace section at the back of the book, and as we got closer and closer to the publishing deadline, we kept having to add people. Yeah. Is, uh, is Frank Kozik still with us? I'm afraid he passed away. That's that's what I thought. Yeah. Not too too long ago. Uh, yeah, I think like in uh, about six. We were what were we? December 2023. Within the last year. Yeah, within the last yeah. year. I think it was yeah, yeah about about you know six and seven months where ago. Where was he? Was he still in, in Austin? California? I think okay. San Francisco. Yeah. He. I think his toys have actually really eclipsed uh, a lot of his poster work as as things had gone forward. Um, but of course, here, you know, I mean, it was just when you, when you moved here, uh, 1987, you immediately gravitated toward this poster art. And at the time, he was, you know, he was doing these two color posters, 
that were not only artistically really cool, but actually did what posters are supposed to do. I mean, they, they read well. The font choices were were good. And, and they, yeah, they were hilarious. And I mean, the, the Poison 13, he the Poison 13 poster he did for Texas Tavern that had, I guess, the barbecue baby Jesus or something along those lines. And then they got in trouble with the university. And, uh, you know, I, I really loved it. I mean, I loved his later work, too, once he got into full color. But the, those early ones were just, I mean, yeah, I, I, the second they would go up, if I got a chance to pull down a clean one, I would. It was kind of like our... Pettibone. is like Raymond yeah. Pettibone, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, this stuff's a great... And so I have his, uh, the one with uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and the microphone in front of him as he's being assassinated. Uh, it's the L7 helmet poster. Yeah. Right. Not bad taste, but but hilarious. And, and I think Pettibone kind of... In a way, he was one of the main music artists for the 80s scene, especially exactly. because of the label and the and his band. Just as Kozik, in a lot of ways, sort of encapsulated a certain side of what I call, um, well, for lack of a better word, uh, stoner rock slash psychedelic rock. And I'm t- and there isn't really a word for it other than Texas weirdness. It, that's exactly it. Uh, maybe maybe Gonzo punk. Yeah, sure. you know, uh, but uh, I'm talking about um, Ed Hall, Moist Fist, Pocket Fisherman, not because of their sound, but because of their stage aesthetic. Crossed. Uh, Crossed, thank you. We could go on and on. The Buttholes, of course. And there's just this insane streak of, of gonzo rockers in Texas, which will always remain alien to me, but I, I do like some of that stuff. um, You also bring up this great point of this is a whole different part or integrated part of the scene was the poster art yeah, and flyers as well. But this weird relationship that Austin has with its musicians in as much as they brought in an ordinance that said you're not allowed to post posters (laughs) up. You're not allowed to promote your music show with posters. And if you do, you'll get a fine for every poster they find and they will come to the club and they will either find you or they'll find the club. That was I mean, an empty threat. How in, well, yeah. no, there were some bands Is who that got right? Find. Yeah. Because what, what, what it meant for us was we just did flyer posting very late at night. That was the only change in our behavior. Right, but you know? the, the, what they would do <laughs> if they found the poster... I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's bonkers, yeah. man. Would, yeah. like, how is that supporting the live music capital exactly, of the world? Yeah. It's, it's very counterintuitive. It was, I mean, yeah. I mean, and, uh, and then going into clubs with decibel meters, like to see how loud yeah, you are. Yeah. Like, it's all trying to sort of suppress the music scene in a way. And this is sort of mid to late 90s yeah, as things yeah. were changing. You know, someone in the book had a great quote. You, you two will have to tell me who said it. But they referred to the, the moniker, the music capital of the world. They said what that really meant was the boogie rock capital of the that world. Was, that was another, another rest in peace. On, boy, that was yeah. Brian McBride. Yeah, oh, Brian yeah. McBride. Was, I remember of, Brian, yeah. Yeah, and to- totally different uh, area of, of the scene. I mean, getting into really kind of ambient music. But, yeah, Brian, I think when I first met him through KTSB, the student radio station, he was the first person, I think, he came up with the idea that there should be like a grunge show. And this was like well before... Uh, Nirvana or yeah, even yeah. Mudhoney had uh, really come into, you know, national consciousness, and uh, and then by the time that was a big deal, he'd started doing this show called the Dick Fudge Show, and basically he would uh, he would he would find like weird noise music, and then 
mix that with recordings that he'd made, and and it was uh, he was doing field recordings. He, yeah, he, he was would doing, just have a dictaphone and walk, get on the bus and record that wow. noise, and yeah. the beeping of the bus and the door opening and closing. Yeah. Really good field recording stuff. Yeah. So, but yeah, that, that that quote about the boogie rock capital of the world. I mean, that that was definitely, I think, what we sort of. Um, and, and truth truth be told, I mean, I'm I'm not ashamed to admit it. Now I got a place in my heart for a little bit of boogie rock every now and then. But but at the time, it was so ubiquitous that you couldn't help but want to push back against it a little bit if you were trying to do something different. And and that was that was kind of where we were coming from. And so yeah, it was sort of like, well, what are what are we going to do that's different than uh, what the what the guys who'd been schooled in the Jimmy and Stevie Ray blues rock arena. Uh, had done but then you know now i go back and read kind of how that the genesis of that and and read about what it was like at the one night and i'm kind of like they were kids they were trying to do something different just just like us they're they're not there's not really a ton of difference other than the medium in which they chose the musical medium was slightly different but yeah they were they were trying to they were trying to make make an impact and and have a good time and so i don't know it's it's funny how that all kind of Maybe I'm just getting smooth with old age. I don't know, but the, yeah, it's like yeah. I really—I I was surprised how much I saw parallels between one night and what we were doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, but I just appreciated that quote because exactly like you say, the the younger set were doing something different. We were all doing our own thing, and I should mention before we move on that I do include both Jesus and Noodle in uh, that litany of Gonzo rock bands, <laughs> oh, without a doubt. So. And, and I, I love both of those bands. And without getting um, too, what's the word, um, nepotistic, maybe, <laughs> I, I like them mostly because of your stage persona. Oh, wow. And I, I always, I've told uh, Greg this before, but I consider him to be the uh, part, um, part Gonzo Rocker and part the Anthony Michael Hall of Austin <laughs> Punk Rock. Because there's there's that nerdiness which he's aware of it and he promoted it and it just works so well on stage. Yeah, you're into it Fantastic. really well. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, I mean, the new, of course, the New Drugs, my wife's favorite band in Austin. Uh, what what band? The New Drugs, the Huey Lewis cover band. He was yeah, in. yeah, yeah. He was amazing. And he had a, a hype man with him singing. It was like, and he had a sport coat, Huey Lewis shirt underneath, you know, red T-shirt. I was like, wow, this is perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's great. That's seen great. a seventh ball bass player and stuff. I'm thinking you're good to go. And, <laughs> And I still need to get the uh, second Peen Beats CD oh, from you. I, I, I'll get that to you. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Joel, yeah, Joel at El Dorado. Sorry, Joel's Joel, another uh, one. Joel, Joel's amazing. Yeah. Joel worked at he worked the bar at Electric Lounge, and then I knew that. yeah, and then he also worked at, at Stubbs. And yeah, the way I met Joel was that you know the Peen Beats had played at Electric Lounge maybe once or twice, and he asked if we if we were still playing out, and I, I said no, we don't we don't really have a drummer right now, and he was like, well, I, I play drums, and then. You know, flash forward a few, and and then Joel started playing with us, and Joel played with the Peen Beats for a while, and now Joel and I have been the band we're in now, Ron Titter Band. We've been playing together nonstop since 2005. So yeah, so he's a classic example of a local boy made good too. Yeah, yeah. Joel, uh, Joel Freed had uh, his El Dorado Cafe, which is one of my favorite places. Yeah, it, it, it's. Yeah, I think it does kind of come into that. It's hard to put your finger on exactly how that, what the attitude is, or what the, what your tack is in terms of how you're going to do your business. But I think there, there's a, uh, not an informality in, in what you're, you're producing, but just an informality in how, how it is you deal with, with people, 
uh, you know, that, that makes them feel uh, comfortable and welcome. I, I, I feel like Austin Music had that, at least what I, I think to, to a large degree it still does, despite the fact the city's gotten so much bigger. But, but yeah, that would be something I would, I would really hate to ever see go away. Two good things about this book, too. I think number one is the fact it's a book. It's a timestamp of history, and I think it's great. A lot of these bands who were you know, sensational bands are getting kind of a, a second look from people. And also it does inspire people down the road to do their own book like this or to start their band. I don't think if it weren't for Austin, I wouldn't have done what I've done here with Chicken Ranch, but definitely encouraged me to keep going with it being here in town. Stratford is, is definitely one of those bands who you know, were always near and dear to me. And I think Carl's songwriting definitely stands the, you know, stands the test of time. I think the, those songs sound as good. You always focused on the song, but then I, you know, I still love, you know, when, when those wannabes guys, those, you know, occasionally they'll still play as a group. Hunter Darby from the wannabes is now playing with Mike Nikolai and the, and the yeah, stairs yeah. who have a great sound. That's very close to that. Right yeah, I know we're right. To, right. Up. I could throw a rock and hit love wheel records from here. Well, I couldn't, but Tom Brady could. Uh, and then of course, pocket fishermen, you can still see them out and about. So it's good just to see people still doing it. Yeah. But we, uh, you know, we, as we've touched on, we can't really forget that the 90s was special because it was the last decade before Austin became a big city. It used to be a, a big university in a small city, and that's flipped, you yeah. know. So, And also it was the last, to a certain degree, the last of physical media for musicians. Yeah. When Napster came in in 2000... And one, 2000, whenever it was, that yeah. kind of broke down the wall and made it possible for organizations so like true. Spotify and so all those true. idiots. Yeah. And, and so now bands don't get paid for what they produce. Right, right. But that was the last of it. And, and I think also back then it was, a, it was a more affordable city to live in, period. The affordability. So that, that not only, you know, was attractive for students, right, but... Uh, artists of all kinds the, the notion of being able to move to uh, like a place that was genuinely livable like a like a city that you would enjoy living in and yeah. that you'd be yeah. proud to call home uh and, and at the same time that it, that it was one of the cheapest cities in the united states to live in i mean they're they're, they're cheap places you can live now mm-hmm. you're going to have to do a little bit more fixing upping for Absolutely. a lot of these places than Absolutely. you would have coming into Austin yeah. because we just had we had a lot of natural beauty here just to start Definitely. with and then just yeah just the university served as an incubator and yeah. these state government jobs that wouldn't dry up if the economy went south yeah, yeah. And, and as as we've all touched on the history of underground music which I don't really know much prior to the late 70s but I've researched the late 70s and now some of the bands I saw when I first visited Texas in 83. So I saw the Dicks and I saw the Big Boys and I saw quite a few of those bands. So I just sensed that of all the places I ended up visiting in Texas in the 80s that Austin was the place. It just spoke to me in so many ways. And a, an under, a history of underground music and creativity was the number one, Paul. Yeah, you know? that's it. Yeah. By, by the way, um, who went to that Nirvana show? Liberty Lunch in 91. I was there. I was not there. I was in grad school. I was writing a paper at the last minute, and I was writing it on a 
brother typewriter. And I remember, and I was going through many ribbons of correction tape. Again, this just gives you an idea of the, the context yeah, of the yeah. time. I remember turning it into the professor, and the professor wrote in the margins, ye gads, Greg, get a word processor. <laughs> but, yeah, I should have just blown that paper off. It probably would have saved the professor some yeah. some time having to slog through it, and then I could have said I saw Nirvana. Right. Yeah, um, I, you know, initially Nirvana were a hard sell for me because they were kind of long-haired and hard rockish, especially that first record. But uh, the reason I went to the show is someone I think we all know is uh, Naomi Shapiro. Yep. She was really into that first record, and she was saying, you got to go see him, you got to go see him. So she twisted my arm, and I, I went to the show at Liberty Lunch. It was packed, oversold. And the mix wasn't very good, so all I heard was an incredibly loud band with not much musical distinction and a very hoarse voice. I didn't pick up on the fact that he was a songwriter. Only later did I get exposed to Nevermind like everybody did and realize that it was not only a, a nice, powerful, hard rock record, but it was also a pop record in the true sense of pop, which is strong melody, yeah. you know, so... So I, I learned to love that record, but the gig didn't convince me. <laughs> Na- Naomi, of course, was the first person to put out a record by Spoon on yeah, Fluffer Records. Fluffer Records. What a great name. Yeah, she, uh, she gives us a little bit of grief, though, because we, we mentioned her in the book, but somehow we forgot to put her in the index. That, that level of detail work has always been a bit I'll, struggle for me. I'll let you explain to the, uh, the people who don't know, what is a Fluffer, Greg? <laughs> I thought you were gonna. I thought you were gonna ask me how do you do an index, but uh, yeah, it's like a best best boy for the entertainment industry. Yeah, it's yes, not, uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, a grip. Yeah, a uh, different kind of grip. A different yeah, kind yeah. of grip. Yeah, yeah, a uh, yeah, a, a pocket key grip. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> that was very obtuse. Uh, the condos here on Burnett Road, all the pro- the progress we've seen here, but and yeah, I guess you have to have that in every city, and yeah, it's a part of life. Well, these those condos are built on what used to be the uh, the Travis County where, where they stored all the wagons. This was? Yeah, oh, wow, way back in the that. day. And then and then it became like a, a at least when I was when I moved here it was a, it was a really kind of poorly attended uh, poorly maintained farmers market. Yeah, I had an office there for a while when we were remodeling our house. I, I ran some space there and uh, they they tried to bring the farmers market back but the guy got busted selling stuff he bought at the grocery store but <laughs> In typical Texas yeah. fashion, but uh, but that that makes me think of, of Liberty Lunch too because that was you know Liberty Lunch was kind of there, there was uh, yeah that was that was built uh, or or Austin sort of started right there because that was a low water crossing on the river That's right and there was a livery right there for wagons and stuff and then it became a a lumber uh, lumber yard for a long time there was the first dam I guess they built at least I think they at least had two dams that they built that that broke. But then I think OBJ uh, became sort of a senator with some clout and, and was friends with the Brown and Root construction people. And, and that kind of, I think, ultimately led way to the Highland Lakes and what made Austin a, a palatable place to do business. Yeah, I guess it was kind of tough before the, it was kind of tough before the uh, I guess they built up the lakes and everything. It was probably a TVA thing or something. or a... uh, Yeah, it was. I mean. I mean When are you back to uh, tomorrow? Tomorrow, back to England. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Where, where are you living now? In Cambridge now. Cambridge. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, very nice. In fact, 
doing a presentation in Cambridge about the book uh, in a few weeks. That's fantastic. Has uh, uh, the book gotten European distribution? Or? There, yeah, it's for sale in England. Um, there's a, there's a, they've got a distribution deal out there. But yeah, I was asked by this arts organization in Cambridge to talk about Stratford, for instance. Or, well, this book generally, yeah, and yeah. you know, it'll do a slideshow. And yeah. Yeah. you know, speaking of which, and the fact that no one in uh, the United Kingdom's really heard of my band because we were an Austin band, there's no, no doubt about it. You know, um, I really wish I'd have sent a copy of Xerox Love to John Peel, I know he'd have loved it, and I just never got around to it. You know, just knowing what I know about the kind of music that, that he, he loved. loved. Yeah, yeah. Your your record would be in that box. Yeah, I mean, no no doubt. And I mean, any and anyone who knows anything about John Peel's music, if they hear, if, yeah, if if you if you think that box is cool, they they should hear Xerox Love. I think I think that's what we'll put if we ever reissue a record. I'll put a sticker on the front that said John Peel would probably really like this record. <laughs> Were you guys and John Peel growing up? Or? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, we. So, you know, you finish at the pub at about 10 to 11, that's closing time, right? And then either take the bus home and then put the radio on when you get home. Or in some cases, we might have had a car and actually drive home and listen to John Peel. But he was on at the perfect time of night. Much like Capsize was on Austin television at the perfect time of night, John Peel was on in, on English radio. It was great. Yeah, a sequel, a, a, a sequel of the Dave, the Dave Pruitt story, all the bands they put on there. I saw some insane stuff on that, that show, too. Yeah, Dave. Yeah, I, I mean, you want to talk about an archive and talk about someone who has done the work, not, not only for our little corner of the scene, but really for, for a lot of different uh, corners of the scene. I mean, if Dave had not been here, uh, first off, I mean, a lot of those bands would have not had the exposure that they did back then, but also the fact that it's, it's still... You know, you can still see this stuff. They, he has this treasure trove of uh, performance footage on on YouTube now. Uh, and it, I mean, it was, he had some incredibly, incredibly shitty bands on there too. It was always fun to watch to see what you're going to get because either going to be really spectacularly bad or really, really good. And yeah, yeah. but that's kind of what I liked oh, about yeah. Dave. It's like so, that yeah. he didn't. You know, he he was. You know, and this, this is I, I was talking Nicest about this a little bit earlier. Is this this whole notion of like, like what what's this line between? guarding the culture and and being too you know too much of like i'm going to be the bouncer at studio 54 i think some of these bands that might have thought were shitty back in 1993 i listen to now and i'm kind of like actually i kind of like the way they're coming at this i'm I'm much more prone to maybe just finding something about something that i like as opposed to uh immediately trying to figure out why something is is why i don't like it and again maybe i'm just getting soft being old but yeah but, but for those who don't know what we're talking about dave pruitt <clears throat> has been an austin access producer since i think the late 80s and <clears throat> he started out with a live show that went live at midnight capsize raw time as well yeah and we would get to the studio about nine or ten o'clock maybe nine o'clock Alex Jones would just have been finishing up in that same studio. He'd be all sweaty and gammon-faced from the Branch Davidians or whatever he was... (laughs) Whatever he was ranting about that week, yeah. Whatever it was, or the owl on the clock face of the Frost Tower. Uh, 
And we would set up and he would have the band come in and play and they would start at midnight and go till 2 a.m. At which point one of the crew, the main lighting cameraman from Capsize, would put on a wig and makeup and become Old Biddy. And Old Biddy was this oh, amazing, squawky-voiced, wonderful human who would just take abuse on these live phone calls. <laughs> yeah, the call-in shows were hilarious. People who just got home from the clubs. Well, I, I think of how many, uh, how, how many young people, mostly male, had the opportunity to say fuck on television because of... <laughs> Because of Dave Brewer. So many calls that would do that. Yeah, it was just hilarious. I mean, it was just, yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, the, the call-in parts were, were always very funny. But but then, the, yeah, the, just the music and just, yeah, uh, D- Dave had on, he had on everybody. I mean, yeah, he did. Yeah. He did. And he talks about in the book, he talks about back in the day before we had everything, that equipment that you could put in your pocket, you know, when oh, yeah. you'd go out or do a live remote recording and hauling around these, these large cameras and all these huge cables. Richard oh, can talk about this, too. we had flight cases of equipment. Yeah. Because cameras, you had to have all this engineering stuff to yeah. make the cameras work and look the right color and everything like that. It was it was really heavy work. This is our, to, yeah. the, the cameras were a lot bigger, bigger and heavier back then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In fact, one of the last things I did for... Dave was filmed Stretford at the Bates Motel during South by Southwest. Dave does, and I think it's on our YouTube page. Maybe, if not, it's on his. Like the whole, the whole show. I don't think I've seen the whole. Well, we should get some Stretford back out on vinyl. I think that'd be pretty cool. For sure. What's next for Richard and Greg? I have decided, because I'm an idiot, that the documentary film is going to become a series. I've finished the one on the cavity, which features Carl Normal. I've, I thought I'd finished the Blue Flamingo, but I watched it again recently. I need to tweak it and improve it. Emos is half done. Trance Syndicate is half done. I've been asked to do one about Austin Radio, but God, it's a lot of work, man, yeah, to get it right. I, I think first, my old thing is that uh, I think it's Dave almost. At some point, the both. I think we've all kind of realized that that this is this story. Just because the, we we put it in a book that has a spine on it and a beginning and an end, it's like there, there's still like way more to talk about. There's still there's still way more stories to tell. So I don't I don't think. Yeah, I, I think we're going to keep on working on this for a while. You know what I enjoyed the most about this whole project was putting out zines. We've put out 11 zines now, which are interviews and content, if you will, that isn't in the book. I deliberately kept most of the zine stuff out of the book, so the people who had done the mail-order purchasing didn't feel gypped, and they got their own special thing. That, it's lovely, right? Yeah, you absolutely. you did zines. You both did zines. Of course, yeah. Companions, uh, the book of the zines that you had as a, as a like, well, it, it, that has crossed my mind, is get all that and put it into a book, same size but a lot thicker, yeah. yeah I mean, uh, hopefully a podcast, too. All right, well, let's wrap this up, uh, Richard. And, uh, thank you ever so much. Thanks to Carl for coming out especially. Oh, man. Thanks for having me. Thanks yeah. for having me. Thanks for tuning in to our show. Thank you again for turning into Season 2. Episode 2 of Chicken Ranch Records, the podcast. Our guests were Richard Weimark, Greg Beats, and Cole Normal. This episode was hosted, produced, and edited by Mike Dickinson. Special thanks to Burnett Go2 for the interview location. And a big thank you to Richard, Greg, and Cole.
Be sure to pick up a curious mix of people at bookstores or online. Special thanks to Chepo Pina. Thanks for tuning into the Chicken Ranch Records podcast. Email us at ranch at chickenranchrecords.com.